are finishing Ecclesiastes today, uh, and it's a tough one. Ecclesiastes is well known as the most difficult book of the Bible. For hundreds of years, commentators have been writing about books of the Bible. Many commentators avoid Ecclesiastes like the plague. Theologians often don't know what to do with the book of, the, uh, of uh, Ecclesiastes. Preachers tend to avoid it. It is depressing and negative and hopeless. For all you visitors, aren't you glad you came today, right? It doesn't seem to fit in the Bible, in fact, because the Bible is written with a nod for hopeful things to come, not Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes just stays in its misery. It starts miserable and it ends miserable, right? Even in, in books of the Bible that are in times of oppression and invasion and war, right, there's always this nod that things are going to get better going ahead, but not in the book of Ecclesiastes. That makes it, according to uh, one pastor, the most relevant book of the Bible. It is the most relevant book of the Bible. Well, why would we say it's the most relevant book of the Bible when it's so dark? Well, because life just sometimes is dark, and sometimes life is difficult, and sometimes life doesn't make sense. And we all have the questions that Ecclesiastes is answering, or at least asking. So that makes it the most relevant book of the Bible. See, very often church just is too clean. Church is just too pretty. I mean, look at you, you're gorgeous, all of you. Right, you woke up, you took care of yourself, you, you, you come to church, right, you're looking pretty good. You got a smile on your face, most of you, except for you sleeping over there, but you know, you're kind of put together at church. And when we come, we want to have inspiring music. There's nothing wrong with that. We want kind of an optimistic, you know, word from God. Nothing wrong with that. But every once in a while, it's okay to dive into Ecclesiastes and to have a raw moment and a real moment. Ecclesiastes is asking the questions I'm asking. It makes it the most relevant book of the Bible. Now, the question that's being asked in Ecclesiastes is a question that we all have. What is the meaning of life? And today, we're going to add one more to that. What is the meaning of death? Ecclesiastes gets into death a little bit, and so we're going to get into that today too. Great, we got depressing and death. Welcome to Rancho. But, but I will say, at the end of this message today, it's going to make a little bit of a turn. So, so hang on for 20 minutes, the last five, it's going to be okay, right? What's the meaning of life and what's the meaning of death? Now, as we get into Ecclesiastes, I want to dive into Solomon's life a little bit, um, a little bit deeper. We introduced him a couple of weeks ago, but let's get into Solomon's life a little bit deeper. Uh, here is, uh, here's Solomon, uh, an artist's rendering of him. He ruled over Israel at the peak of Israel's power in 1000 BC. Israel never has had larger borders than under King uh, Solomon. He ruled over trade routes from east to west, from north to south. He ruled over a fleet of ships that gathered wealth from all over the known world. Kings and queens would come to the feet of Solomon for wisdom. This is a queen coming to Solomon uh, to, to glean from him. One of the wealthiest people to ever have lived, he built uh, homes the size of cities. He built a great Solomon's temple. He was considered to be the wisest man who has ever lived as people from all over the world would sit at his feet and hear from him. He denied himself no pleasure, 1,000 wives and mistresses. He had it all. He had power, pleasure, prosperity, prominence. And at the end of his life, he writes the book of Ecclesiastes. He had it all. He absolutely had it all. Now, there is, fortunately for us, a modern-day equivalent of King Solomon. This allows us to kind of get into the head and the heart and the values of Solomon. That's not a joke. I'm, I'm telling you, do a little bit of research. King Solomon and Donald Trump. 
I mean, there's been a lot of work done. There is an eerie comparison there. Now, I'm not making any, you know, political statements. I'm just saying there's an eerie comparison. So if we want to know kind of the heart of King Solomon, we've got a modern-day figure that we can look at and go, okay, I get it. I get it. What is King Solomon's conclusion at the end of his life? Well, it's not very pretty. Everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. It's quite a word picture. We're hungry. We want to shove it in our mouth, right? We want to shove it in our mouth. And so we've got, uh, you know, whether it's food, whether it's greed, whether it's money, whether it's lifestyle, we are gorging ourselves and what the world has to offer. And, and especially when you have the prominence of King Solomon, he can, he, can, he can try to stuff it all in. In fact, in America, it looks something like that. It, money is our God, right? And we just want it. And anything that money can buy, we want it. But the reality is, as Solomon says, we keep shoveling it in, but it never satisfies. It never satisfies. If we get some, we want the next something. That's just the way it is. And that's true of King Solomon. It's true of us today. Stuffing our mouths, but never full. So Solomon details what's meaningless about all this. So he begins his, his book by saying this. Life is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. He basically says hello, and everything is meaningless right out of the gate. And then he gives some specifics. Pleasure is meaningless. Work is meaningless. Wisdom is meaningless. The future is meaningless. Worry is meaningless. Life and death is meaningless. Envy is meaningless. Fame is meaningless. The future is meaningless. Wealth is meaningless. Our days are meaningless. Frivolity is meaningless. Right and wrong is meaningless. What to come is meaningless. Youth and vigor are meaningless. Everything is meaningless. He ends the book how he starts it. Are we having fun yet, Rancho? Everything is meaningless. I've got a good friend of mine who writes uh, rap lyrics. Now, I have to admit, I am not the aficionado of spitting rhymes, right? So, but this guy's good. He's, he's, he has books and books that he keeps of, of uh, this stuff, and it's very good. Here's just a couple of lines. He wrote this after the first week of, um, of our study of Ecclesiastes. Living in a rut without meaning, in a ditch trying to solve it with screaming. I fight my demons for what reason? Without faith is like treason, pointless without God in these seasons, pointless like a rhyme without reason. Pretty good stuff, right? Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. <laughs> I, can't read the, I can't read the whole thing. <laughs> There's some swear words in there. No. <laughs> There's some good stuff there. It's real. It's raw, right? And so these, these, these lyrics are written almost as though King Solomon is writing these as lyrics. They're poetry but they're raw and they're real. It's, it's truly what's going through his soul. That is the wrestling and the torment of somebody who pursued it all, shoved it all in his mouth, but realizes he is starving to death and all of it is meaningless. Like a rhyme without reason. Like a rhyme without reason. Speaking of rhyme without reason, Iggy Azalea, sometimes she freestyles. Doesn't go real well. Here's some freestyling from Iggy from 2015. Tire monks, tire monks, when a grid links up to a runaway train, spitting like a pastor, raptor backstreet, did like, don't like, gotta go faster, motorbike face star, Iggy got, get it, which go like a goat, penthouse Cheerio on top, when I win, win, no, win a peg. I come through like a pro, get me sheen, that's my pro toe, Australians, no cinema, I don't care who you are, don't kill the rat, on point, potter pass. Gotta twist this beat, won't tell the pat pat rap city, no ditty, no no giggles. What does that mean? 
It's a rhyme without reason. Ecclesiastes says that's life. It's rhyme without reason. The book of Ecclesiastes is the nonsense of this world on full display. Ecclesiastes is the nonsense of this world on full display. Now, no doubt you have thought this world is nonsense as well. That's why Ecclesiastes is the most relevant book of the Bible, because you've had those feelings as well. Perhaps you're working hard, you're busting your butt. Every day you're going to work, you're grinding, you're working hard, you're meeting your numbers, and other people get the promotions you don't. You don't get the pay you deserve, and you're wondering, what is this all about? What's the grind all about? What's the commute all about? What's this very small paycheck all about? Or maybe you get something you've always wanted, right? You've wanted that ride, you've wanted that TV, you've wanted that house, whatever it was, and you, you get it, maybe you go into debt for it, and then you realize, you know what? This thing's rotting and devaluing, and I'm stuck with it, like everything else. Nonsense. Maybe you pursue pleasure, and you pursued that pleasure that you know was wrong, and you went for it, and you got it, and now you're dealing with guilt and consequences, and that was just nonsense. You climb the corporate ladder, but realizing being you know, pressured and, and dealing with the pressure at the top did not meet what you thought would be the gratification of stature and status. Maybe you have a, a health scare that puts life in perspective and you realize that your body is fragile and you are not gonna live forever. What's this all about? You lose somebody you love dearly and your heart is aching and you're not sure you're ever gonna get past that ache and you wonder what was that all about? It doesn't make any sense. Why would I lose this person that I love so much? It's nonsense. So you might ask the same question that Solomon asked. What is it all for and where does it all lead? Because we look at the world and we can't connect the dots, right? We look at the suffering of the world, bad things happen to good people, good things happen to bad people, none of it makes sense. It's a rhyme without reason. What is it, what is it all for and where does it all lead? And Solomon's attempt at an answer, I'm just going to tell you right now, isn't very helpful. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so, die, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. That's his answer. And then he goes on to detail a little bit later what happens after we die. Ecclesiastes 6.12 for who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow? Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? He's saying in both these chapters, number one, you know, we have breath like the animals. We breathe, we don't breathe, we die. We live, we die just like the animals. There is no difference. What's after death? Who has any idea? Our stuff gets handed out off to the next generation and they will squander it and blow it as Solomon's kids did. Did we really make a lasting impact? I mean, all these questions we have when we're faced with our own mortality and the temporal nature of life. What's it all for? What's it all for? We all have these questions. Now Solomon had no clue what life was all about and he had no clue what would happen after life. And just to be clear, the Old Testament doesn't say anything about the afterlife. Now you're sitting here in a Christian church and you might think to yourself, well, that's unusual. I didn't expect to hear that, right? You go to a Christian church, we talk about afterlife a lot. Are you telling me the entire Old Testament says nothing about the afterlife? That is correct. The Old Testament is three quarters of your Bible. Bible's that thick, Old Testament's that thick. Three quarters of the Bible says nothing about the afterlife. And so we gotta give Solomon a little bit of a break. When he says, hey, I don't know what, what's happening after, after we die. Animals breathe, they stop breathing, they live, they die. We breathe, we stop breathing, we live, we die. What's there, who knows? 
There's no way to possibly know. In the Old Testament, there's a word called sheol, which is a Hebrew word which means the grave. It's sort of the mystical grave. Everybody experiences death. Everybody goes to the grave. Everybody goes to sheol. King James very unfortunately translated that as hell. It's a terrible translation. Uh, it just simply means the grave, this dark, ominous, mysterious blackness that swallows up all of humanity. That is the word in the Old Testament. There's this really funky verse, Genesis 5, uh, 24, nobody knows what to do with. There's this righteous man, Enoch, and God causes him to disappear and takes him. We have no idea what to do with that. That's kind of a very unusual uh, passage. It happens with, um, um, later to a prophet in the Old Testament as well. And what is that? We might think in our day and age, they go to heaven. That's not exactly what is said in those passages. King David had an affair with Bathsheba. That's a very famous story. Uh, then has her husband killed. Uh, not a very pleasant season in David's life. They have a baby as a result of the affair. The baby dies. David's heart is broken. And David says, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. And in our chair, sitting here 2,000 years after Jesus, we might think, well, David says he's going to see his son in heaven. That's not what David says. The son goes to Sheol, gets swallowed up by the darkness of death. David says, I will go to Sheol. That son will not come to me because the idea of resurrection is not in the Old Testament. There's also this vague, vague hope, as close as we can get to the idea of afterlife in the Old Testament, is Psalm 1610. Psalm 1610. The psalmist says, God, you will not abandon me to Sheol. That's about it. That is the, a small ray of light piercing through the blackness of Sheol, the grave, saying, well, maybe there's an afterlife. Who knows? See, keep in mind, the entire Old Testament is about this life right here. The entire Old Testament is about this life, the here and now. God says to a, a nomadic tribal people, Here's my law, here's how to live a civil existence here and now. God basically gives them a governmental system called the law. Here's how to live a civil life here and now. God gives them various promises. Hey, if you live a civil life, you will be blessed. If you live like barbarians, you will not be blessed. That's basically the Old Testament. And then there's this uh, promise going forward that one day something will get better. One day there will be a, a, a savior, there will be a king, there will be a better something at some point. But the Old Testament pretty much is about the here and now. So we have to give Solomon a little break because he doesn't have a lot of advanced theology about the afterlife. Nobody did in the Old Testament. So as a result, the view was here and now. And Solomon says, hey, listen, try to enjoy every day you can possibly squeak out of this life, because this is it. That's what he says in Ecclesiastes 11.8. However many years anyone may live, and who knows, let them enjoy them all. But let them also remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. There he is again. He can't help himself. He's saying, we have no idea what life is about. Life is random. Doesn't make any sense, Right? But while you're here, and you don't know if you're going to be here a long time or a short time, while you're here, enjoy every day and every year you possibly can. But brace yourself for dark days ahead because there's a lot of them. Life's meaningless. Now, when we come to the realization of that, that life is short, a couple things happen. Some wonderful things happen and some terrifying things happen. 
And Ecclesiastes deals with them both. When we come to the realization that life is short, there's some very wonderful things that take place. There's a beauty about life that emerges when we know it's short. Beauty is linked with fragility. If I showed you, uh, let's go take a look at a boulder out there. It's been here for millions and millions of years. What do you think? Beautiful might not be the first thing that you would say because beauty is linked with fragility. We are fragile. Our life is fragile. And so there's a beauty about life. We're heading into spring, right? And so uh, flowers and trees are starting to, to bud. And when they explode with flowers, we will think this is beautiful. Why? Because they appear and then they're gone. When we come to the realization that in this life we appear and then we're gone, there's a real treasure, a real beauty about this life. It also allows us to take every moment seriously. When we come to the real understanding, not, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to die, but I am mortal. I, this is not going to last forever, right? This body right here, right now is going to expire. It allows us to treasure every moment. I'm not sure if you woke up this morning, woke up and go, oh, thank God, another day right? don't know if you had that experience. Sometimes we take days for granted, yeah? But I'm telling you, the older you get, the more you treasure every single day as a gift. We have our wonderful tradition service. I love our tradition service. Tends to be on a little bit of the older side, and I love greeting our traditions congregation. You know, I, I shake their hand. How are you doing today? Oh, woke up this side of the earth. It's like, okay, <laughs> glad you made it, <laughs> you know? Or talk to another person, how you doing today? Oh, one foot in the grave, one foot on a banana peel. All right, come right on in. It's great. It's kind of fun. You treasure every moment when you really understand that life is short. There's also a wonderful adventure in knowing that life is short. It really is an adventure. There's no guarantee about what's going to happen today. I mean, you're here and you're put together. You're looking good, right? That's great. And I hope and pray that you have a wonderful afternoon, but something might happen this afternoon that just hits you sideways. Who knows? None of us know. There's an adventure about that. We can work and hope and pray that things go well, but if it doesn't, well, we're in for another adventure, aren't we? There is an adventure in life. There is a treasure in life. There's a beauty in life when we know that it's short. So knowing that life is short has a wonderful side effect, but it's also terrifying. If life is short, and if this is all there is, according to uh, Solomon, then it's incredibly terrifying because this world is full of injustice. And if this world is full of injustice and this is all there is, that's a horrifying thought. Solomon puts it this way in Ecclesiastes 8.14. There's something else meaningless that occurs on the earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. Doesn't that drive you crazy? Right? It's, it really is an incredible thing that he says this too is meaningless. This too is meaningless. It's terrifying to think if this is all there is and the world is so full of injustice that actually all of this could wind down and nothing is made ultimately right. That's a terrifying thought. It's also terrifying to think that when we die, there could be no everlasting impact. I mean, it is said, it is said that even in this technological age that after four generations after we die, no one will remember us. Well, all my stuff's on Facebook. Four generations from now, oh, let's look at your stuff on Facebook. I don't think they're going to care. It's terrifying to think, are we really making a dent in life? Are we really making an impact in life if this is all there is? It's also terrifying the concept of being swallowed up by death. Um, I've had one scare that could have possibly ended in my mortality. 
We recently had a, uh, another one in our family that fortunately both of those things ended up being okay. We've lost some loved ones. We certainly walk alongside countless people here. A large church like ours, we're always walking with people towards the end of life. There's a great profound pleasure about that, but it's terrifying. And if this is all there is to the thought that we will be swallowed up by death, breathe our last breath and that's it, it's terrifying. Ecclesiastes 3.19 says this. We already quoted it. It's not a verse you're gonna memorize in Sunday school. As the animal dies, so humanity dies. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything's meaningless. That's terrifying. This is what life is like without knowing the life of God. Ecclesiastes is a book that explains life apart from the knowledge of God. You might think, well, wasn't Solomon king over Israel? Wasn't Israel following God? Well, most of the time, no, actually. David followed God. David was a man after his own heart. David had a son through Bathsheba, Solomon. Solomon's heart was not following God. Solomon's heart was following everything under the sun. That's what he said. I've chased everything under the sun. Everything I could see, I chased. Everything I could desire, I seized. His, his God was not the Lord. His God was this earth chasing everything under the sun. Ecclesiastes is a book about what not to believe and how not to live. And that's why we're studying it the weeks before Easter, because Ecclesiastes is the dark before the dawn. Ecclesiastes is what happens when you have a godless value system pursuing the godlessness of this earth. He dabbled in faith, he built the temple, and that was kind of a privilege for him, but his heart, his gut, his appetite was here and now. So he didn't see the beauty of following God. He didn't see the life that God had for him. He didn't see the cues, even in God's law, even in, in the Torah, the Old Testament, he didn't see the cues of what God really wants of us. We didn't see that until a thousand years after Solomon. King Solomon ruled over a very earthly, worldly kingdom in Jerusalem. But a new king came to Jerusalem 1,000 years later, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Jesus lived a life that was entirely different from Solomon's. Everything that Solomon was, Jesus was the opposite. Solomon lived for pleasure. Jesus lived for the betterment of others. Solomon lived for wealth. Jesus came to give and to serve. Solomon lived for pride. Jesus came in humility. Solomon was brash, a man of war, a conqueror who took slaves. Jesus was a gentle man. Jesus was everything Solomon wasn't. So for us to take a look at, at Solomon, which is the heart of a man in it for himself and the heart of a person who's in it for the world right here, right now, everything that my heart desires, I want it now, Jesus was the opposite. He's a new kind of king. Not after the line of Solomon, but after the line of the Heavenly Father. And so as Jesus is approaching the end of his ministry, he talks about Solomon. Jesus says this in Matthew 12. The Queen of the South, this is the Queen of Sheba, who went to Solomon. And that's a very famous love story. You can read about it in 1 Kings, I think, 10. Uh, the Queen of Sheba from North Africa hears about Solomon's wisdom, goes to visit Solomon, and just falls madly in love with him, and he falls madly in love with her. In fact, it says in, uh, in 1 Kings that she um, pays him uh, kind of tribute. He gives her wisdom, and it says her breath was taken away. So you know that phrase, breath is taken away? You take my breath away? That's Queen of Sheba, Solomon, uh, love story. 
Queen of the South will rise, Jesus says, at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. So he's talking to the Jewish religious people. You're not seeing the true wisdom from heaven. Even this queen from Africa saw the wisdom of Solomon. But Jesus says this, and now something greater than Solomon is here. Who's he talking about? Himself. Something greater than Solomon is here. Ecclesiastes is an incredible gift in the Bible that shows us the opposite of who Jesus is. It's the darkness before the dawn. Solomon was a king over Israel, in it for himself, gluttony, greed, power, and pleasure. Jesus starts a brand new kingdom in Jerusalem of love, service, sacrifice, forgiveness, right? Something greater than Solomon is here. Love is greater than power. King Jesus is greater than King Solomon, right? Selflessness is greater than pride. Generosity is greater than conquering. Jesus is the greater king. I want to show you this image of how Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. This is Palm Sunday. This is Sunday before Resurrection Sunday. This is Sunday before Easter. Jesus rode into Jerusalem, but very much unlike Solomon rode into Jerusalem. As we discussed two weeks ago, Solomon rode into Jerusalem with 14,000 horses of war. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a single humble donkey. Solomon rode into Jerusalem with 10,000 soldiers ready for battle. Jesus rode into Jerusalem with 10,000 disciples committed to loving one another. Jesus rode into Jerusalem with the finest silk robes of royalty. Jesus rode into Jerusalem with the common linens of a peasant. Solomon rode into Jerusalem living for his own pleasure and power. Jesus rode into Jerusalem living for the benefit of others. Solomon rode into Jerusalem amassing the treasures of the earth for himself. Jesus rode into Jerusalem giving the treasure of love to others. Jesus rode into Jerusalem as a brand new king, not in the line of Solomon, but the line of the heavenly father, and that's the superior kingdom. The greater kingdom is the kingdom of love. Jesus is the power of God, and the power of God is love. Jesus is the wisdom of God, and the wisdom of God is love. Jesus is the treasure of God, and the treasure of God is love. Jesus is the heart of God, and the heart of God is love. And he showed us that love that Easter weekend. As he rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, goes right to the temple, and in that temple, he tears down all the oppressors that were keeping people in harm and keeping people in oppression. He releases the least, the last, and the lost, and he gives them dignity, and he gives them a, a true meaning for living, not simply perceiving themselves as a victim of earthly power, but perceiving themselves as a dearly loved child of God, a son of God, a daughter of God, declared perfect in the eyes of God because of God's heart of forgiveness. Then on that Thursday, he gathers his disciples together and he passes them the bread and he breaks the bread. He says, this is my body broken for you. He passes the wine. He says, this is my blood shed for you. He says, I'm about to show you the full measure of my love. My body will be broken, my blood will be shed to take the sin and the suffering of the world upon himself, pay for it in full. That's the measure of God's love for us. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of love, not power, not gluttony, not greed, not pride, but it's a kingdom of love.
And he showed us the full love of God by giving his life on a cross. So on Thursday night, we're going to gather together for the Last Supper meal on the central campus at 630. It's a powerful time to remember the broken body of Christ, the shed blood of Christ, spilled to forgive your sin and mine. And then we're going to get back together on Sunday, and I'll tip my hand a little bit. There is resurrection. There is life beyond the grave. No one knew that until Christ walked out of the grave. No one knew that there's not only a meaning and purpose in this life, and that meaning and that purpose is love, but there is life beyond the grave. There is love that lasts forever. The love of Christ even conquers the grave, conquers death, and conquers sin, because Jesus Christ was swallowed up by Sheol, yet he walked out of that grave in victory. That gives meaning to life. Life is about love, and love is forever. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you even for Ecclesiastes, a book that is dark and cold and ominous and hopeless, but it is a, an incredible contrast to the light and the life of Jesus Christ. We see in King Solomon everything that is wrong with this world, a gluttonous pursuit of wealth and power and greed and materialism and pleasure, and we see that it is all futile. It is all meaningless. And a thousand years later, King Jesus comes in humility and peace. He comes in poverty and selflessness and sacrifice, even giving himself on a cross to bear the suffering and the sin of the world upon himself. And by your power and the power of your spirit, you rose him from the grave, that there would be victory over sin. We are forgiven. We are clean. We are declared your perfect children, not because of anything we've done, but purely by your grace. He, he rose again from the dead, not only in victory over sin, but victory over death. There is truly an eternal life of love that awaits us. We thank you that you gave us that promise and that surety through the resurrection of Christ, your son, whom we will celebrate with all of our heart Thursday night during the Last Supper service and Sunday Easter. May you be glorified, lifted high. In Christ's name, amen.